0: The scripture reading for the sermon today is from Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of God. Move this down a minute. Just wanted to say you know, this weekend, as JC prayed, uh, we finished up our Bible Club, our Vacation Bible Club in the park, and it was a great week. I just want to say thank you for all of you who came out um, to support that work and to support that ministry in the park, and thank you for those who were praying. Um, I do think we could say that it was a fantastic week of ministering and loving kids in our neighborhood, and um, I'm thankful that we were able to do that. Uh, it was a great joy to be there, even in spite of of the hot weather and the bruises on my arms. But it was a good time. Um, you know, a number of years ago, I uh, went with some colleagues to Zurich, Switzerland, and we were there for a conference. And uh, we flew into Switzerland and then took a train from Zurich to Interlaken. And now Interlaken sits at the base of the Alps and is like this mountain town that everyone goes to to enter into the Swiss Alps. And, but on the train ride over from Zurich, I'd never been to Switzerland, and it was just beautiful. Rolling green hills, verdant green everywhere, uh, alpine lakes, alpine rivers, and as well as these just beautiful small medieval towns that just you know were out of place. They didn't look like they belonged there. It was an amazing train ride, and then of course we spent that week in Interlaken uh, working together as a team. And um, at the end of that week, we had a week of vacation time, and we decided that. We We're going to spend some of the time in that area around Interlaken. And on one of those days, we got on a train and we went to uh, about a 30 or 40 minute ride away into this town. Now, you could only get into this town on a train. You could only get there through walking, either hiking in or on this train. And um, I remember the first time coming in a train, it was just, it was a beautiful ride in. But as you got off the train in the train station, there's this huge expanse of alpine peaks opened up before you. We're in this valley, in this green, and there's, it was just a beautiful day, the skies are blue, the sun is shining, and the majesty and the beauty and the awesomeness of God's creation just struck me. And I just could stand there and praise God for such a beautiful creation that He'd given me the opportunity to experience. And if you know anything about me, you know that I, I love the outdoors, I love God's creation. But when I come to this section of Scripture here in verses 5 through 11, I have that same joy, that same radiant joy comes over me when I read about Christ and His work on our behalf. You know, I'm stunned by the beauty that's portrayed here, and my soul truly does sing out for joy because of Christ. You know, this section of Scripture is like the Mount Everest of mountain peaks of all of Scripture um, in portraying the work and uh, person of Christ. Uh, you can't find a more concise statement in all of Scripture regarding who Jesus is and what He's done. Now, you can find these same statements all over Scripture, but nowhere can you find this in such a concise area. And this is considered a hymn by most commentators or a song. Um, Either Paul wrote it himself or someone else in the early church wrote it and Paul incorporated in this letter for us uh, to stir our hearts to love Jesus even more. And this section of Scripture um, begins with Paul laying out examples for us to follow examples for Christians to follow. And he starts with Jesus, and then as he goes through the rest of chapter 2, he's also going to point us to Timothy, and he's going to appoint us to Epaphroditus as examples who are living, of men and women who uh, exemplify what it means uh, to consider others better than ourselves. And that's exactly what Paul is doing here in this, this section of Scripture. So today we're going to look at Verse 5, which is basically an exhortation uh, to follow Christ or have the mind of Christ. Verses 6 through 8 are telling us about the humiliation of Christ. And verses 9 through 11 are going to deal with the exaltation of Christ. Now, we could easily spend four or five weeks here. I'm going to try to keep sermon, the sermon mostly within the context of the text. But we could come back here and develop all kinds of themes. And maybe we'll do that at another time. But today we're going to stay within the context of these, the scriptures here of what's going on within the Philippian church. Sorry, let me mess with this mic a little bit more. Beginning in verse 5, Paul says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. You know, he's basically saying to us, "Have put on Christ's mind. Christ's mind should be in us, at work in us. And it's basically saying, embrace his mindset, or embrace His attitude, the attitude of Christ. Um, And so the question that comes to us, of course, is, well, what is the mind of Christ? What is the mind of Christ in this section of Scripture? And it's, of course, humility, right? That's what being portrayed to us, the mind of Christ is humility. And more specifically, I would say it's love expressing itself through and in humility. But before we address the way Christ exhibits humility, let's take a few minutes and consider what this text says about who Jesus is and how far he stooped down for you and me. In verse 6, Paul states, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Did you see that? Do you hear what Paul's saying? Jesus is in the form of God. And form is this Greek word that means is morphe. And of course, you know where we get that in our English, morphology, or the morph from one thing to the no- another. And in Greek, it doesn't just mean appearance, it also means nature. And so what Paul is saying here is that in Jesus, that, that in Jesus exists all the divine attributes of God. That Jesus is, in essence, God, fully and completely. You know, this is not a new teaching. It's not something, hopefully, this is not the first time you've heard that. <laughs> I don't think it is. It's a, it's, this is a general teaching throughout the New Testament that Jesus is God. And that's Paul is just reaffirming that and commenting on that, on that fact. If you go back to uh, John 1, where the apostle John says, uh, says this, in the beginning was the Word, in the beginning was Jesus, and, the, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God, Jesus was in the beginning with God. John is reminding us there that from the very beginning, the Father and the Son have existed together in unity with the Holy Spirit for all eternity. They've always existed in unity together. Paul goes on elsewhere in Colossians and he says, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the the word of his power. Our triune God has always existed as one God and three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And Jesus, the very nature of the invisible God is on display for us. And we have access to Him, direct access to Him through His Spirit and through the Word of God. And if we want to truly understand and see the humility of Jesus here in 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 this passage, we need to first understand His divine status, what Jesus gave up for you and me. So now that we understand that Jesus, who Jesus is, that he is in fullness, God, I want us to look at three ways that Jesus demonstrates humility for us in these first few verses. Verses 6 to 8, Paul reads, or Paul says, Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." What does it mean when Paul says here that Jesus emptied himself? Does it mean, as some people have said in the past, particularly in the 19th century, that Jesus got rid of his divinity, that he gave up his divinity and he came only as a man? Well, hopefully we see that that's that's not the case. The the full New Testament teaches that Jesus didn't give up his divinity. He was here on earth as the God-man, both God and, and man. Philip Johnson in his commentary on on the book of Philippians says, the idea of emptying himself, that Jesus emptying himself, means that Jesus made himself powerless. That is, Jesus embraced a role of insignificance and impotence by assuming the form of a servant. Johnson goes on to say that Jesus humbled himself by taking to his divine nature a complete human nature, limited like ours, yet unstained with sin. Though Jesus has the status of divinity, this hymn teaches or this song teaches that he refused to stand on his rights. He refused to stand on his prerogatives as God Almighty. Christ refused to selfishly cling to his high position as God. Jesus gave up his rights and he humbled himself so that you and me might have life in him. The second way Jesus showed humility is by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. Jesus willingly took on human flesh. That is, he willingly became a servant for us. He entered into servitude for you and me. He took on the fullness of humanity and he enveloped that in himself, becoming both the God, God and man. And the book of Hebrews says, Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect, except of course for sin. He was a real human being who got tired, he slept, he ate, and yet he was shockingly different from any other human who's ever lived. Think about it. Jesus could calm a storm simply with his voice. He could raise the dead. He could heal the blind. He was, not, he was like us in every way, and yet also remarkably different because he was God in the flesh. He took on human nature to, to, to not live in a palace like a king, but to give himself as a lowly servant to you and me. This is this this, this word that um, Paul uses to describe uh, Jesus as a servant. Here is the same word that Paul used in verse one, verse two, to describe Timothy and himself as servants. So Paul is saying that Jesus is a bond servant; that Jesus came as in essence as a slave, willingly giving himself for you and me. He laid aside all his rights that we might enjoy life, eternal life with him. The third way I want us to see that Jesus showed humil- humility is by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You know, this, uh, this section really, these verses 6-8, really a slow dive down, down into humil- humiliation and it culminates with the God-man becoming obedient to the point of death. And not just any death, but the shameful death of dying on the cross. You have to understand in Roman culture. Uh, Jesus' death was only relegated, or those dying on the cross were only relegated to terrorists and the worst kinds of criminals, right? To die on the cross wasn't, um, to be crucified wasn't good common conversation to have within, within Roman society. You didn't talk about it. Only the worst of people went to the cross, and yet that's the death that Jesus died. Within his culture, the, within the Roman culture, people couldn't look at Jesus and see, oh, wow, that was a victorious death. No, that was a shameful death that he endured for you and me because the cross was an instrument of torture and shame within that culture. You know, when we think of Jesus' death, of course, we think of him from a heroic standpoint, or a loving standpoint of giving himself himself for us, right? But in Jesus' day, again, many people... And Jesus day, and even today, many people cannot imagine that Jesus was crucified, that Jesus even died. His death and his life transformed Western civilization, and it still impacts us even today, even as Christianity sort of is on the wane, on, on the wane in the Western world. What do I mean that his death impacted us? Impacts impacts us today, as a culture, as a society. You know, our culture still values, on one level random acts of kindness towards strangers. Right? We still value not being selfish, at least not openly being so. Right? We still value equality and social justice right? as part of the Western world, the Western culture. Those are things that we value. Those don't exist, for the most part, outside of the Western world. And the reason for that is because of Jesus' death it has impacted the way we look at the world, even as we reject Christ more and more as a culture, as a society. His death still impacts the way we approach our lives and the way we live and the way we look at one another. You know, these kinds of views that we have are really quite radical. Working with others from a different faith background, I work, as many of you know, I work with Muslims, uh, South Asian Muslims. Well, Muslims from that particular background, they never really think of, you're never gonna hear them talk about, oh, I'm gonna consider this other person better than myself. All right, They never talk that way. It's one of the most frustrating things working with South Asians is that, South Asian Muslims, is that they only talk about how much better they are than everyone else. And if you, if you listen to them, you would think that they were the best person in their entire community. Part of that is their understanding of their faith, but also the fact that it hasn't been impacted by the fact that Christ came and died, showed humility, um, the way that we might relate to one another, which has, been, has impacted us because of of who Jesus is. Not, not, only on, not only that, but Muslims can't imagine, can't even envision the fact that Jesus died on the cross. There is no way for an average Muslim to believe that Jesus, not only did he die, he certainly didn't die on the cross. The Quran goes to great lengths to, co- to confirm or to convince its readers, that Jesus was not crucified and Jesus did not die. Because to be crucified and and to die meant that that was shameful. And Allah would not allow His prophet to endure shame and scorn. But what does Scripture say? What does the Bible say regarding Jesus? It says, For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. What Paul is saying in that verse is what seems foolish to unbelievers becomes the wisdom of God in Scripture to redeem a broken and sinful world for Christ willingly and obediently went to his death that we might have life. We have seen that Jesus exercised humility by willingly setting aside his rights as God, taking the nature of a servant and enduring humiliation at the hands of his own creation, during humiliation of the very people he made. But the story doesn't end there, right? The story doesn't end there. If you continue in verses nine through 11, Show as the result of the consequence of living a life of humanity, of of humility. Sorry, of considering others better than ourselves. That that Jesus will be exalted to the highest heavens, to the highest level. Paul says in these verses: Therefore, God has exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Note here that there's a subtle shift between the first half and the second half of this song, of this, this uh, hymn, right? The first half, Jesus is doing all of the action. He's the one who's laying aside his, um, uh, he's the one taking on human nature, becoming a servant, not considering quality with God, something to be grasped. That's Jesus is doing the action. In the second part of this hymn, in 9 through 11, God is the actor. God is bestowing on Jesus because of his faithfulness this exaltation, exalting him to the highest level. God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Now, if you stop and think about that for a second, what is the name that's above every name? Well, scripture actually tells us that name. It's mentioned 6,500 times in the Old Testament. And it's the name of God. Uh, in the Old Testament, uh, you can't tell this most, in most of our English Bibles. But in the Old Testament, the the Jewish people would read this, and they would have understood exactly what Paul was saying here. They would read through their their Old Testament, and they would come to the name of God, and they would change the name. They would insert a different name. Out of respect, out of reverence, out of fear, they did not want to say the name of God. They thought maybe they would say it incorrectly. So in, in the rabbinical literature and in the reading of the Bible, they replaced the name of God with another name called Lord, Adonai right so when you if you want to see this if you go to your new you go to your Old Testament you look in your Old Testament whenever you see the the Lord capitalizing in your English Bibles in the Old Testament that's referring to the name of God which is Yahweh so why why how am I spell that right why H W H in in uh, Hebrew alright that's the name that the Bible is trans- translating as Lord capitalized in the Old Testament and the New Testament it comes over as Lord, L-O-R-D, and can mean both the name of God or just simply master or uh, Lord, like uh, uh, the Lord of an estate, right? So when Paul is saying here that Jesus was given the name that was above every name, he's saying, look, there's another point. He's pointing again to this man, this God-man is divine. This is who he is. He is deity enclosed in flesh and blood. Paul finishes this section by telling us that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. There's no place in heaven or on earth where Christ will not be proclaimed Lord Almighty. Everyone will acknowledge his lordship in this life or in the next life to come. Now understand, Paul isn't saying this is universal salvation, right? We know that. We've gone through this whole book together. We know that Paul's talking about believers and unbelievers. So here he's not saying everyone's going to be saved, but he is saying that regardless of where you are, whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, there will come a day when you will have to acknowledge Jesus is Lord. He is King. He is God Almighty. And you will acknowledge that, whether now or later, there's a day when that will become true for you and me. Paul's main point here is that because of Jesus' exaltation, we can be sure that God will reward humble service. That sounds strange to our ears, I think. We live in a culture that values and encourages us to push ourselves forward, to put ourselves out there in order to get the recognition that we think we deserve. You know, we're afraid of missing out sometimes, so we live life by pushing ourselves are putting ourselves out in front of others, flashing out our credentials, showing us who we are in order to get the respect that we think we deserve. The world says we need to live like this to get recognition and honor. But Paul is saying, go against the flow. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, live in a Christ-like manner. You remember that from verse 27, chapter one? Live in a way that you honor Christ. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, live in a way that Christ is honored. Not we're, not we're honored, not we're putting ourselves out there, but we're putting Christ out there. And that we're submitting to His will and His wisdom for our lives to live in a humble state before each other, in our families, even within our government. And here's the thing, what Paul is saying is we can get, at, we are going to get the, uh, the recognition that we deserve. We may not get it in this lifetime, But we're going to be exalted because in Christ, all who follow Him are exalted to the highest heaven. All who follow Him enter into heaven and have life eternal with Him. That's our exaltation. It's not now that we try to receive. It's not now that we look to be exalted among our fellow peers. It's in the end time that Christ promises us, guarantees us, that we will be exalted before God Almighty because of We've lived a life of humility. we lived a life of putting others before ourselves. You know, whenever we come to these kinds of passages, it's easy to forget that Paul is giving this exhortation to believers. And as Paul holds up Jesus to us, it may lead some of us to think that Paul is saying that the gospel message is be like Jesus. right? Be like Jesus. I don't know if you're old enough like me and some of us in here, but uh, there's a famous commercial in the 90s Um, about Michael Jordan, right? Be Like Mike, everybody remember that commercial? Um, If you haven't, you should go home and look it up on YouTube. It's a great commercial. Um, It was a commercial that uh, Gatorade made uh, that made Michael Jordan a household name at that time. He was already famous in the basketball world, but it made him famous throughout the world then and throughout the United States. But also, that commercial led to millions of kids wanting to emulate Michael on the basketball court. But here's the problem, right? The only problem, of course, with that is that there was only one Michael Jordan. And try as I might or try as you might, I could not be Mike. (laughs) I could not be Mike. And it's the same for you and me here. There's only one Jesus. And the gospel message is not be like Jesus. If you think that being like Jesus will be enough to be accepted by God, then you haven't understood the gospel. Paul is not saying, be like Jesus and you will be saved. He's saying, since you have been saved through faith in Christ, then live in a manner worthy of the gospel. Going again back to verse 27 of chapter 1. Live in a manner. We're already saved. We've already been united to Christ. So now follow Christ's example as a way to live, not as a way to be saved, not as a way to enter into heaven, but as a way for us to live out what it means to be followers of Jesus. You know, how are we to do that, Paul says? In verse 5 he tells us we're to have the mind of Christ. We're by adopting Jesus' attitudes and actions. You know, having the mind of Christ means giving up our rights, giving up our privileges, giving up our prerogatives. This is God's will for us. And it's only possible through the grace of the Holy Spirit working in our lives to live this way. Look, whenever there is divisiveness, It's often a picture of the pride that's taken root in our own hearts, right? One pastor said it like this, and I really like this quote. Um, He said, pride in a single individual life, in a family, a church, in government, or a whole nation always destroys, always divides, sets one person against another, perpetuates conflict, breaks up marriages and partnerships and unions of every sort. Pride, selfish ambition, conceit are standard problems for you and me, for Christians. Let's just, let's be honest, right? We, we all know this. Even if we don't like to talk about it, we all struggle with this. We are sinners, and we will inevitably sometimes hurt each other with our words or sometimes even with our actions. And Paul's answer to this normal struggles, to these normal struggles that we face, is really to drop a truth bomb on him. And what I mean by that, I, I don't know if... <laughs> This is a little bit funny, I think. But if you know this, there's a group called the Gap Band. In the 1980s, they came up with a song. that says, You Dropped a Bomb on Me, Baby. I've been singing that song all week. Okay? You can't imagine me dancing around, but that's... Because that was the song when I was reading this. I was like, oh, this is exactly what happened. Paul has dropped a bomb right into the midst of this church, right into our midst. And he said he took this remarkable, beautiful hymn of Christ and he dropped it on top of our heads to help us think and to live out the deep truths of who Jesus is in our own relationships with one another. Now, I know you're all going to go back and look up the Gap Band, so you'd please do that. But, <laughs> so how do we defeat pride? Then How do we defeat pride in taking, uh, that's taken root in our hearts? But Simple. It's not really simple, and I, and I want to say this. Defeating pride, dealing with these issues of conceit and selfish ambition, these aren't easy things to deal with. So please don't come away hearing me say, oh yeah, just you know, by the power of the Holy Spirit, I'm gonna walk out of here and tomorrow, I'm not gonna uh, get angry with my wife. I'm not gonna get frustrated with this person. That's not what I'm saying. This is hard, this is difficult, but it doesn't make it any less important that we work these things out in our lives because that is who Christ is. And that is what he's calling us to. As believers, not just in our church, in our relationships, in our marriages, in our friendships, in our, with our work colleagues. This is the kind of relationship we are called to have with one another, with others as well. So, how do we then get rid of pride? By humbling ourselves, just as Christ humbled himself. You know, by thinking of others better than we would think of ourselves. You know, how do we stop the urge to defend ourselves? and demand our rights and, you know, I need to hear this all the time. If you don't believe me, you can ask my wife because I want to be heard and I want my rights. But Paul says, how do you stop doing that? By thinking of Christ, by adopting His mindset, by adopting His attitudes. We are called to a lifetime of humility, brothers and sisters, and it's not easy. It's going to take work. It's going to take reliance upon the Spirit, knowing Christ's Word, and beginning to work that out in our relationships by denying rights by denying our prerogatives. May we, through the power of the Spirit, have the mind of Christ as we love and serve one another. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for Your Word. Give us the mind of Christ through Your Spirit at work in us, we pray, in the glorious name of Jesus Christ, our King and our Lord. Amen.